Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. My name is Colin Hunter, and wanted to introduce a lady today who is exceptional. Tamara Steffens has a career and background in ventures, new ventures, startups. And when you hear the conversation today, you'll hear some of the uh, the journey that she's been on from the first email um, through to some mobile technologies. What's really critical for me is listening to this conversation is the story she tells about how she's operating those teams. Enthusiasm is is in abundance, but it's the the stories about how she's operating, how she's made those startups work. So now she's in ventures. So she's looking at ventures, looking at investing, and, and again, some, some nuggets about what she invests in and some stories about how she's coached founders and investors in there. So delighted to have Tamara on today, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation. Tamara, lovely to have you on the show today. Thank you for taking the time. For those who've never heard about you, and I don't know how that could be, but <laughs> where where in the world are you? And tell us a bit about you. Great to be here, Colin. I'm Tamara Steffens. I'm the managing director at Thomson Reuters New Venture Fund, new as of a year ago. Our fund is based in New York. I live in Dallas, but spend a lot of time on the East Coast now. Previously, a lot of time on the West Coast, and pretty much my entire career was based out of Silicon Valley, but it's nice to be back in New York. Amazing. Tell us about your journey, because it, it is fascinating. I'm always fascinated by people who have venture in their, their title, yeah, in terms of looking at new ventures and other pieces. But tell us how you got to this place. It would be fascinating to hear your journey. Yeah, it, it, a little bit of zig and zag, but I think I'm typical of a lot of venture partners in that, you know, my career was based on you know, six different startups. The last one we sold to Microsoft, but I ended up getting into, you know, tech early on at Sun Microsystems and Silicon Graphics in, I don't want to really admit the dates, but everybody knows that they were quite <laughs> A while ago, in, a while ago. Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, in the late 90s, really, when some of the early startups, you know, started really making a name, the likes of Netscape, etc., I ended up at a company called Software.com. Um, no, we didn't sell software, it, <laughs> even though it was, a, it, it was a software company, but it was based on email. And I was at Silicon Graphics and, and the founders, uh, a guy by the name of John McFarlane, who then went on to found Sonos well-known entrepreneur. And uh, he and I got to know each other. And he said, look, I have this company and we we really believe that personal email is going to take off. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, yeah, I guess it could. You know, we all use email at work. Really, when we look back at it, everybody was using voicemail. And so I remember telling some what I considered crazy smart friends that I was going to go work for an email startup and that the concept is, Everyone was going to get a personal email account, maybe more than one. And, you know, because it just internet services just started, right? So everything from Earthlink to AOL to all of, you know, and at the time in, in Dallas, it was GTE. Now Verizon was one of my customers at Silicon Graphics. And they were like, yeah, we're, we're going to start an ISP as well. And I thought, I think there's something there. And it turns out that, yes, in fact, everybody did use personal email. And now we all have 10 email addresses used for different purposes, but it was great. And, you know, we, we took the company public in 99 
and merged with um, a company at the time called Unwired Planet to become OpenWave. I led sales for them for several years and then went on to my next startup, which just so happened to be the founder of Earthlink. Was, his name was Sky Dayton. His name is Sky Dayton. And uh, he started Boingo, which is mm. still around, right? Um, yeah. Connecting Wi-Fi. So the idea was to connect... If you got one account, you could connect your Wi-Fi across the world. So every coffee shop, every airport, you know, you name it. And so we spent a lot of time traveling the world trying to get airports and coffee shops and hotel lobbies to connect into a single Wi-Fi account. And, you know, you could subscribe to that and be able to connect anywhere in the world. And that was really before they put Wi-Fi on phones. It was kind of at the early stage of that. So what was unique about it was... Once they got laptops going, you know, with Wi-Fi, immediately that moved over to an option on the phone and it really took off, right? And so having a Wi-Fi account to be able to connect anywhere became pretty critical. And again, I remember friends of mine going, what? What are you doing? You're like flying all over trying to talk people into being on a Wi-Fi network, but it worked out well as well. And that company also went public. Then I did a number of startups after that, a couple that... You know, one, uh, we recapped, it was called Fusion One. It was backup software for your mobile phone. Funny enough, most people at the time would drop their mobile phones in water, normally in the bathroom, which, you know, you couldn't get your phone. You couldn't get it back, right? Nothing was on it. You lost everything. Verizon had this idea that if you had a Verizon phone, you could go in and everything would still be on it. So you paid them $1 a month and it was called backup and recovery software and if you ever lost your phone or dropped it, wrecked it, they could, you know, hand it back to you. And that was really before everybody had cloud, right? Mm -hmm. When Apple and Google really didn't offer cloud services, right? It was the technology that was used on mobile phones back then was actually by Qualcomm. It was called Brew. And then, you know, Apple and, and Google stepped into the mix. But, you know, it seemed like I kind of started an email and immediately went to mobile um, because obviously the email company I started with you know, we, we quickly moved to a mobile application as well. And then it sounds funny, but I ended an email. So Accompli was a company started and, and I knew, you know, several of the guys were with me in my first journey at software.com. And we started Accompli and it got sold to Microsoft. And it's now, for most of you, if you use um, Outlook on your phone, it's Outlook Mobile. So started with email, ended with email. I can't get away from email. <laughs> I was just about to say, you know, well, what you know, we we use Slack now, and we're starting to to move away from that. So, I'm fascinated just about the culture because there's there's a history of, of what it sounds like networking that took you through, and then there's cutting edge in nearly everything you were doing in startups. What was it about the startups and those that really got you enticed and then kept you in that loop? You know, I think for me, I liked the small beginnings of most startups, right? Where, you know, you get a chance to do everything. I, I remember, you know, the last startup I was at was Accompli and we only had 11 people and we ended up QAing the product ourselves, right? We didn't even, and I happen to be somebody who always used Android. A lot of the other guys used iOS. And so I think I was like, you know, the best bug detector they could have found, right? Yeah. So I liked the fact that, yes, I was running business development, sales, revenue operations, and kind of overall ops. And then, you know, the engineering team was designing the product and, and doing what they had to do. 
but we were all using it. Right. And so mm. as it didn't matter whether I was, you know, fixing bugs or telling them what was wrong, you know, writing the financial plan, whatever we needed to do. I like the fact that you'd have to do it all. Right. So, you know, now, and I kind of fell into venture after, you know, they accompli got bought by Microsoft. I led a very large biz dev team on the productivity side of the house um, for Microsoft. So everything under, you know, office 365 education, you know, all of our ed tech products and, you know, doing that coming from a startup and, and going into a big company, it was really interesting because I think that's one of the things that has made my leadership style pretty different. Meaning I don't care if somebody needs me to clean the bathroom, right? If that's the job I need to do as a leader, so the rest of the people can do whatever it is they're going to do to make the company successful. That's great. I'm happy to go do it. I think having that startup experience makes you a more flexible leader, you know, especially in times of when you need more resources and you don't have them, right? You got to be able to do everything. Uh, I used to have a client friend who used to change the light bulbs and it was a large gas container ship, but he was the one up there going, I'm changing the light bulbs. And, you know, for me, it's a concept of sweeping the sheds that the All Blacks, the New Zealand uh, rugby team have. There's the senior leaders clear up the dressing room afterwards. That's what they do. It's about keeping humble, grounded. So there's, there's something for me in there that as a leader doing that is, is a sign of respect to the rest of the team as well. Yeah. Right, right. Well, and I think the team becomes more open when you take that approach, right? You don't, there's not this level of this is the leader. So you got to go through these three people before you talk to them. I mean, if you really want to create an open door policy, you've got to be able to do every job that's on your team, right? So be able to functionally at least understand it, right? I can barely write code. So from an engineering perspective, I don't think I could could do much to help. But I did understand what they were doing, right? And I could bring, you know, a bug or a problem in the software and, and explain, you know, it in a way that they could understand it so they could fix it. So I had great appreciation for what they were doing. Um, and I think in turn, they appreciated what I was doing. So a couple of thoughts I'm going through my mind as we go through. One of the biggest things, as a founder of a business myself, one of the things is the founders of businesses tend to get in the way. <laughs> find a founder-led business and you'll find you know, blockages all over the business because of them. But it sounds like you found a way past that. So tell me about that. Well, you know what? I'm not great at everything. And that's mm. the one thing I think you know founders have to realize, right? And I think good ones do, right? Mm. So- the reason you want to go hire the best CFO or the best salesperson or sales leader and the best, you know, business development person is because you cannot do it all. And if you think you can, you will find out very quickly that you either are building a lifestyle business, which is going to be three people, or, you know, you're going to build a bigger company and you're going to bring in people that are better than you at all of those functions, right? So I remember, you know, working with Sky Dayton. And one of the things I loved about the way he managed Boingo was that every function had to be fabulous, right? So marketing, I did sales and BD and finance and engineering. And so he would have individual meetings with everybody. And then we would all come together. And his concept was... Every single department function had to be exceptional because then together it would be phenomenal. And we all did work incredibly well together and we would share and pick up, 
stuff where we could because we ran pretty lean as well. I liked the way he said every single function is going to be great. And then together it will be even better. I did learn a lot from that style. I thought it was a great approach. And tell us more, because that, that sounds very simple. But actually, for me, I, I know this, is you can get fiefdoms to work exceptionally well, but it's the collaboration across them that is the, the critical bit. So how did you get that to work? You know, it's interesting because I think the approach was more like if there is something broken in engineering and I understand it at a department level, right, or at a functional level, we can go and fix that, right? So yeah. I'm going to make sure that each block, if you will, is, you know, functioning well, because if they're all functioning well, putting them all together is going to be easier. I agree with that because in, in theory, like if for some reason my sales organization or my BD organization wasn't, you know, selling the product, right? But product was doing great and engineering was doing great and marketing was doing great. Well, the problem is in sales, right? It really is. If I'm not selling the product and all these other groups have a good solution. Now, in fact, if I could point out why the product was broken or, you know, something else. But again, if product was running, right, and it wasn't broken and engineering wasn't broken and marketing wasn't broken, well, then I should be able to sell. That is, that's a fact, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you, yeah. everybody could argue there's product market fit and some other things like that. But let's make the assumption that, you know, there was product market fit, right? And so if I wasn't selling and yet all the other, you know, blocks were doing well, then it was, the problem was in sales and I should go figure that out. Hmm. I love that. I totally agree with you, actually, when it comes to that, because if if you're functionally doing well and actually your product is right, it comes to a question I've got to, to ask you about. So you've seen over a period of time, different startups and different learning, you know, if you take lean startup, you take the minimal viable product, you take all the the theories and the practices now in terms of startups and how it's changed. There's a piece for me about the growth of, of that type of organization and the business. And there's a bit about getting the product right. So I just want to come back to that and getting the product right. Tell me about your experience of how it's changed and how you've learned over your time. Gosh, in the last couple of years, it's really ebbed and flowed, right? I mean, because there was so much money going into the markets in 20 and 21, in some ways, you know, that created over hiring. And I think maybe even you didn't get to exactly what you just said. You almost didn't get to MVP before you had, you know, 20 engineers working on version two and three. So you never really, you know, figured out exactly where it fit in the market. And now the sales organization is working with a product that wasn't a perfect fit to start, but we way over hired and, you know, we're, charging ahead, right? If you go back, you know, and you, you can read a lot lately, different VCs have different opinions, but I tend to agree with the one that with less money, you can actually do more because hmm. you actually end up having to make sure you have that product market fit, right? And getting those first customers that will actually pay you for the product or service, right? Whereas before, if you had a long runway, you could stretch out when you could, you know, have revenue, start hitting the books. That never used to be the case. In a startup, you really had to, you know, not pay yourself, not pay the engineers sometimes in the beginning. And and then, you know, okay, we figured it out. Now we know we can sell this product for this amount. We've got a couple of references. Let's go build the company, right? 
um, which I think we're reverting back to that. And I think it's going to be a good thing. I think what's going to happen is we're going to end up with a lot of great companies that come out of 2023, 2024 with, you know, a leaner approach to start. That's very interesting. I want to sort of dip into that a bit further because it's from quite a few people listening. They go, oh, I can't leave my organization. My salary's good. I don't want to take the risk, golden handcuffs, all of those principles. And then you talk about startup, might not even be able to pay myself or pay the engineers or whoever it is in there. How does that operate? Because a lot of people go, so how do you live? How do you get by? You know, I happen to be a pretty frugal person to begin with, so I could probably have done it that I did it six times and never really thought about it. But I think you have to have that mentality, right? Where you might not make a paycheck for a little bit, or it might not be a hit, right? You might end up going to work somewhere, taking less money, trying the startup thing. And two years later going, Ugh, that wasn't a great mm. idea. But if you learned from it and the next time you do it, you take in all those lessons and you can apply them. I think you will be successful if you keep, trying. There's a lot of pivoting in startups. And I think I've also become really good at that now, even being at two bigger companies is really thinking about the direction and being able to pivot. Because I think that's part of successful startups will pivot if needed, right? So, you know, at software.com, we had, it was desktop based email, right? It wasn't on your phone. And as soon as people started you know, doing, obviously you could do texting on your phone, but you, if you recall in the early days, you couldn't even text me mm. because if I was on Sprint and you were on Verizon, you couldn't text each other. Right. So once they figured that out, email became actually easier with just using internet, right. On phones. And so we knew we saw it and we were like, immediately we had to move to mobile. Um, and I think pivoting and being able to be flexible is pretty important. And the same thing, if you're going to quit your job and go to a startup, you got to kind of build that flexibility into your life and your mentality before you do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the guy that says I've got golden handcuffs and I can't walk away from the salary isn't going to do it anyway. They're not going to do it. And, and, you know, oftentimes those are great people to keep in large companies and, and, you know, they do great work and, they keep doing great work, but they're probably not going to end up being the CEO of that company either because they're not willing to take the risk. And risk-taking is a key theme coming through here because even with startups, I mean, I don't know the stats, but I think it's 80% of startups will, will fail at some point. You'll probably correct me on that. but Yeah, that's spot on with the number. So, yeah. I so mean, that's for people. It's got to have a, a particular mentality. But there's something in it for me that I would love to have in my business, somebody who had that mentality, which is, you know, we're we're risking, it's my money, I'm leading and making decisions as if it's my money. So how do you spot people like that when you're looking at talent and recruitment? You know, when I was at Microsoft Ventures M12, I liked looking at founders who understand, you know, that level of risk, right? They really understand the finances of the company right from the beginning. Like, you know, we're not going to have revenue until eight months, but at eight months, we're going to do this. And if we can get to, they'll show a detailed financial plan. It won't be right. It's never right. Right. Yeah. Like when we look at startups, I usually take what they give me and cut it in half as far as my financial model of why I would invest. But it doesn't have to be right. It has to make sense. Right. And it has to be a plan where even if it is half, they can still be successful. Right. So 
That's how we look at it. And that's usually how I coach founders is take your plan, cut it in half and make sure you can still make it work because that Mm. could happen and probably will. So if you think about it from that perspective, you, you have this great idea. You had some early success. You had early revenues. So you're like, okay, I'm going to do $5 million next year. No, you're not. You're probably going to do one, but make it work with that one, right? Understand your cash flow and what you have and what your runway is to give you the time to actually get to that next number. As you, you go into the recruitment of those founders, or you're coaching the founder, I'm loving the coaching of the founders. Already, when it was funny when you said, cut the number by half, I'm, I suddenly relaxed. My shoulders went, I thought, okay, so if I cut my what I'm demanding by half, because there is a difference between quality of what you're doing and the big numbers. And I, I, there's that real tension between aspiration, growth, and getting growth right as well. Do you want to say right. something a bit about that? And I think once you get that, product market fit and you do start to get the revenue, you know, whether it's year two, three or four, you will get to doubling year over year, tripling year over year, if you've got the right product and the right product market fit. And then, then you'll be able to see those numbers a little bit, you know, better. It's really in the first few years that you tend to get it wrong. One, and I think it's a good thing for, I like when founders are super optimistic and, and show me what the total addressable market is, but there's a fine line between being aggressive and being absurd, right? So, you know, I like the aggressive founder. When someone comes to me with absurd, I'm like, this is not, you'll never hit this, right? And I try not to be negative, but I'm very honest. And and usually if, if I think it's absurd, I'll be like, you know, I'm going to fast pass on this in a nice way, right? Give them as much feedback of, of why I don't think it will happen. Some have come back and been like, you know what, you're right. And I'm like, okay, I'll look at it again if you've adjusted, you know, your spend and your idea. Because sometimes it's a great idea with the wrong plan, right? This is a great idea, but the wrong plan. I looked at a company recently that I absolutely loved. It was in tax and the product, I won't get into details about the product, but they're selling it directly to, you know, the governments of large countries, small countries, and it predicts fraud. And it's great. I mean, technology is amazing, really good use of artificial intelligence. But the reality is, I'm like, you're not going to have a big enough market if you're only calling on the tax position, the IRS, if you will, of Mm. all these big countries. I'm like, what you should do is flip it around and sell it to to CPAs or big accounting firms. Let them tell their clients they're making mistakes, right? Mm. That way they will have the ability to run the same tool and say, Joe Smith, you know, there's some things you left off your taxes and here this software now is going to show you that you've left things off. Now, the good news is you can fix it before you send in your taxes, mm. right? Versus that software just going to the government and the government saying, okay, Joe Smith, you're a fraud, which is Hmm. fine. But I think you actually fixed the problem before. It's almost like there was a product. It's still out there. It's used by a lot of universities called turn it in. And we really loved them as a partner when we were at Microsoft and it detects plagiarism on papers. So you used to be universities would run it. And if you plagiarized your paper, you'd immediately fail. They changed their attitude now and the students now can submit it into Turnitin and it will show them where they believe there's some plagiarism or some issue because sometimes you plagiarize accidentally. And now the student has a chance to fix it 
and then they turn it in. And that like, okay, if you're a student that doesn't actually use the tool and you turn it in anyway, you probably should fail if you plagiarize. So it's kind of the same thing. So I I told the tax guys they should reverse this. They haven't changed the product yet, but when they come back and they tell me I was right, then I'm going to invest. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. So there's something about the persona, isn't there? It, it's just flipping the persona. And I think that's where people get fixated and having a great idea, but they don't have the personas in mind. But crafting the right persona or having the mindset to craft the right persona is a difficult one. So that's a, yeah, a good example. Yeah, true. Yeah. And by the way, this tax idea is great and they're making a ton of money. And so mm. they'll do fine selling to the governments, um, the tax authorities, if you will, around the world to start, but they're going to have to come back. And if they want a bigger TAM, they're going to have to come back and do it in reverse. So I'll catch them on the other side. I was chatting to Josh Seiden, who's written a book called Outcomes. And Outcomes is, so he's all about the outcomes when you're design thinking, when you're iterating, does a lot of work on products. I'm interested because when you were starting off on the emails and moving to the mobile, the cell and other places, how much have you shifted your views around outcome versus outputs? Yeah. So in your mind and the product. I still tend to lean in on outcome mostly because I, I try to understand who is the end user and not, not a consumer product or a B2B. It's the same, right? Who is the end user of this solution, if you will? How many of those users are there? How much will they pay you, right? So I tend to look at that. I like the book as well. And, you know, it's interesting because I do think there is some room for even me to change, you know, the way I look at things and thinking about output. But, but in some ways, you can have great output and no outcome, right? Yeah. I mean... So I still tend to think reverse so that I understand what you have to output to get that outcome, right? And what he would say is actually outputs are important, you know, and some things just need outputs. You know how to do it, get done. Yeah. But the outcomes, having that that thinking uh, space to think, okay, future. And he talked about his partner who was very much about outputs and he was very much about the broader picture. So I love that. I'd love to dig into a bit about your experience of talent because we talked when we were previewing for the um, the podcast about being able to spot talent, grow talent uh, and working. And that's from everything you say makes me think that not only you're a good coach for people, but there's there's almost a hint of passion there. Well, it's not more than a hint of passion for, for growing talent. Tell me a bit about that because you've obviously experienced it from the other side in terms of working with other people. What's your views? Yeah, Microsoft taught me a lot. You know, working in startups, I think we were we all considered each other equal, right? There's it just, I think startup land tends to just put everybody at the same level for a lot of reasons, right? You're trying to all get to the finish line, and whoever gets there first doesn't matter because you're all going to benefit, right? But one of the things that was interesting about Microsoft is we were able to bring in a lot of early in career, you know talent, right? Right out of college. And I was brand new to Microsoft and the business development organization never hired college students. It was always MBAs or not even, even MBAs were not common because they wanted people to come into BD with a lot of experience, right? Because it was supposedly more difficult to learn. Peggy Johnson, who is an exceptional leader and and now the CEO of uh, AR startup, 
she was like, no, I think we should bring in early in career talent. I think it's going to really change the dynamic of the organization and be able to, for us to understand technology from a different vantage point. And she was a hundred percent correct. But the first year we had, I think three, we had three or four analysts. I was brand new and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, that's fine. I just got here. I'm happy to, uh, I'll take on the analysts. And I think I got three out of the four hmm. and everyone's like, okay, it's going to take a lot of time and you really have to coach these people and you really got to really take the time. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, the reality is they coached me, right? And, and Peggy was 100% right. They bringing that talent in and the way they use technology and what they were looking at was completely different than, you know, everybody else in the organization. And I, I remember at one point sitting in a product meeting at Microsoft where somebody said the average age of our user or the uh, demographic of our user is a 51-year-old white male. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. That's, I guess that makes sense. And I thought to myself, if we're going to change this, the people that are helping us with business development and product do need to be a different demographic, right? They need to be coming in and giving us ideas. And uh, I remember one of our analysts was just brilliant and, and very hardworking. And one of the guys that was managing our global relationship with Samsung took another position and he was senior, like director level. I'm like, I think we should put her on it. And everybody's like, you are crazy. <laughs> that I mean, she's 21 years old. She just got out of college. So she's been here six months and she's really one of the smartest people on the team. I think she could do it. Like, she totally gets this tech. She turned out to be incredible. I mean, maybe one of the best drivers. And it just showed you didn't have to have a director level. She didn't even have a passport. And I said, you need to be, you need to go to Korea next week. And she was, I'll go get a passport. And I think Samsung at first was a little bit nervous when I said, she's going to run the global relationship for you. And they were looking at me like, what? And, mm -hmm. you know, six months later, they were like, this is the best relationship person we've had. She's crazy smart. She understands the product. She's very technical. And she didn't mind, you know, working Korean hours, right? Which was another, you know, she was early in her career. So she was fine staying up late at night and, you know, flying to Korea and doing whatever, right? Which I didn't intend it to be a, you know, odd hour job. She actually figured it out and said, I'm going to, I'm switching this up. I'm going to, you know, start later and work later because I need to be with the Samsung team more. And I'm like, see, we make a change here with this younger talent and look what we're getting, right? To this day, she's probably still the best person they ever had on Samsung. Yeah, I, you had a good old friend who used to, um, he was a 50-year-old white male who ran Levi's. And he used to have, I think what he described as muses and mules, but he never, he was said, I'm not close enough to the club scene where they were selling the jeans or making the jeans or designing the jeans. So he had to have people who understood that market, who understood the club scene. So there is a bit of reverse mentoring. So it's amazing how much you learn from, well, whether I learn from my daughters or whoever it is. So there's that reverse mentoring piece. But there's also this belief in talent. You know, we talk about this undiscovered leaders and how often we overlook talent, whether it's for neurodiverse reasons or many different reasons. So it's, it is the ability to spot it. Um, but for me, it's about what did you see in her? that made you think this is the right person? She was super disciplined at everything she did, right? So 
she had this approach. I think she put everything in a timeline, right? And understood what pieces of projects needed to get done and, you know, was delivered everything on time and, and really exceptional quality. And I knew that somebody who was going to take on a big position, you know, with one of our biggest partners, because I mean, it was literally putting, you know, Microsoft software on every Samsung device. It had never been done. Right. And so everybody was like, you're crazy. But again, I knew that her discipline level was going to be exceptional. Right. And that's what it needed. Like we can't screw this up. Like it has to go. Like we've got to get deliveries out and software out because half of it was working with product and engineering and making sure we understood what the teams in Korea needed so that you could have a you know success of, of that software working. And I knew she had the ability to do it, right? She was just a really disciplined person. I love that. Great place. Uh, we could talk for uh, our hours and maybe we need to get you back because I'd love to hear some more stories around this. Wanted to come back as we talked previously about... Uh, you and how you got here. But again, one of these things that I'm hearing from the, the recruitment of the talent is around discipline. So I just want to just end in terms of what are the things that you do that you think you've learned that are exceptional in terms of that discipline and those habits? What are they? Yeah, I think the one thing that I do different than I did at the beginning of my career is I listen a lot more and I don't try to come up with every answer. I used to listen and think of an answer for everything and then quickly tell, tell everybody what the answer was. Um, and it's not that the answer was wrong. And th the fact is there's often more than one right answer and you really want the best answer. And so instead of, I still listen, I still come up with what I believe to be the right answers for, you know, the problems we're trying to solve, but now I don't, tell anybody what they are until I listen to everybody's. And then I'm like, okay, so three of my answers are right. We'll go with those. Cause I think everybody agrees. Those would be great. But my other two answers were good, but this person's are better. Hmm. And so try to pick, you know, it's almost like, you know, athletics, you and I've joked about, you know, just sports. And I, I said, the analogy, I played softball when I first moved to Dallas and I wasn't good. It was co-ed team, mostly gone for, you know, to get a beer after the game, but we had one guy who was the best athlete, right? And he played shortstop and he would literally run from shortstop to right field because he was convinced that the right fielder could not catch the ball. And so then he's out in right field and nobody's on shortstop. And so it didn't matter how great he was. And he was our best hitter and our, our best, you know, person on the field, but you know, if you had to back up the second baseman or the third baseman, or you needed to run into to help the catcher that the shortstop can do all of that running from shortstop to right field. He's off the field entirely and the whole game goes crazy. Right. And it's like, it, it's the same thing in business, right? If I'm, if I'm running over to start writing code, we're all in trouble, right? Mm. We, we may as well just call it a day because it's not going to be good. I love that as a leading indicator of what not to do as a leader. Yeah. Yes. That's a great one. <laughs> Don't try to play every position. Really. <laughs> Exactly. Stick to what you know. Tamara has been a, a delight. I'm going to end with three questions I always ask. So, and I think we've covered a couple of these. So let me uh, ask it. So what's the one memorable moment from your career that shaped your leadership? If you had to pick one, what would it be? Yeah, I think it was my first startup. And, you know, we did not raise venture, right? We never went out. We thought, you know, we, we bootstrapped it and did a good job at that. 
I didn't know any better at the time. It was my very first startup, but I do remember sitting down with the head of finance and myself, I was running sales and our CEO, and they're like, we're not going to make payroll. It, we are not going to make payroll. And it was about, I would say two weeks out. So let's say we had about 30 days to solve the problem and barely 30 days. And I'm like, yikes. Okay. But it took all hands on deck to really understand that. Now we didn't go tell the entire company and make everybody worried about it, but it really stepped up my game to say, you know, this accounts receivable has to come in and we need to get, you know, these two deals in and collected within this time frame, which was a very shortened window in a normal sales cycle. We did make it happen. It was the most stressful 30 days I think I've ever had in my life, but it's never happened again quite that way. Like now I am constantly at other startups, obviously now I'm in a big company, but I'm constantly looking 90 days out all the time. Like, and, and I do it now, even at, at Thomson Reuters, like what deal we're going to get, when's it going to come in? You know, what's the timing of ongoing sense of urgency that never left me from that point. <laughs> I love it. It's it's the drumbeat, isn't it? It's it's the constant looking ahead, and because we can get complacent and uh, yeah. and feel that, and that's a horrible feeling when you get complacent. But it's other people's jobs that you're you're, you're thinking about. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, second thing, if you had one thing you would disrupt in leaders or leadership at the moment, what would it be? I think it's that old adage: the meeting that could have been an email. It's gotten worse since the pandemic, right? Because everybody felt like you had to get on video, you had to do Zoom, you had to do Teams, you got to see each other. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you just can send an email or you just need to tell me something or you just have a question you want me to answer, shoot me an email. We do not have to have a meeting just for the sake of having a meeting. Even status updates, right? Those can easily be sent out. You don't need to get on a call. Now, if you want to do some iteration or you want to discuss it, great feel free to set it up as a meeting. But I do believe that a lot of meetings can be emails and you can save a lot of time and get further faster without having meetings for the sake of meetings. I'm going to quote that to my team because I think that's the biggest bugbear at the moment. Some of them work part-time, three days a week, and they're thinking, well, my three days is filled up with meetings, talking about stuff rather than doing stuff. And it's, right. yeah, it's crazy. Final one, I think we've covered this, but let's see if it's a different answer that comes to your head. But what's the the one leadership habit that's non-negotiable for you? You know, I think for me, I got to get up and work out every morning, right? So whether it's a run, you and I joke that I went to Barry's this morning. I think that time is really important. And if I end up having an early meeting, I'll do it as a walking meeting, right? Mm. To try to make sure I get that hour of movement before the day begins. I think it clears my head, even if I have to meet while doing it. So I love the fact that it's your daughter that gets you to do that workout barriers as well going, come on, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice. It's nice when somebody else is encouraging you to go do the workout because I'm a similar, I get is. up in the morning. Sometimes that's the only time I see her is if I go to Barry's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tamara, it's been a, a complete joy. If people want to find out about you, hear more about you or read more about you, where would they go to find out? Yeah. LinkedIn. So just Tamara Steffens. Uh, my Twitter is at Tamara Steffens, my whole name. And then email is Thomson Reuters is just Tamara.Steffens at TR.com. Amazing. Thank you, Tamara. It's just been brilliant to have this conversation and uh, I look forward to catching up with you soon. Great. Thanks, Colin. Have a great day.
Hey folks, what a conversation. Tamara, for me, encapsulates a lot of what I would have loved in my career. And I had a couple of leaders who really made a big influence on me, but having somebody who does what she does from the tidying up, from doing all the work in the background she talked about as a leader, sweeping the sheds, as the All Blacks call it, through to this belief in talent, this young person who took over that big account in a role, through to the stories of, of how she engendered energy and focus to the businesses and startups she's worked in. There's so many stories that you could, you could build on and you could pick her brains over. One of the key things for me, though, that I, uh, that I listened to was this concept of understanding the financials. And it's, it's an interesting one for me because as a person who's a non-financial and really have to focus my mind around it, it's understanding where the income is going to come from. And that 90 day focus, where the income is going to come from is the piece I took uh, away from today. And if we could get everybody in our larger organizations to start to work in this way about spending the money as if it's their own, it's, it'd be a massive difference in terms of the commercialism and the entrepreneurial that we've got in our businesses. So Tamara was a joy to in- interview on this uh, podcast. So welcome you hopefully to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast soon. And thanks for listening in.